Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show, we have a very special crossover episode with the podcast Love Thy Neighborhood. The Love Thy Neighborhood podcast explores the intersection of social action and Christian faith as they follow everyday people doing extraordinary things. Garen, join them on this episode and you'll hear the background and history of how the religious right was formed. And if you're like me and you're like, whoa, that sounds boring. Well, you're going to love this episode. It's super informative. It's super well produced. We love what Love Thy Neighborhood is doing. And we were very thankful to be asked to be a part of it. Before we jump into that episode, remember that you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com backslash black history for white people. And if you can't support us financially, then the next best option is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show and get the word out there. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Back in November of 1990, Dr. Randall Bomber received a strange invitation in the mail. I was invited to a gathering in Washington, D.C. And uh, to be honest, I almost didn't go because, uh, you know, I was teaching. I had a a young family and uh, was trying to juggle all sorts of responsibilities. But the last minute I decided, well, I'll go to this thing. So Dr. Balmer finds himself in a hotel conference room in Washington, D.C. There's about 30 other men there. But here's why the invitation was strange. Dr. Balmer is a professor of religion. Currently, he's a professor at Dartmouth College. At the time, he was at Columbia University. And he's a history junkie. He's written dozens of books on America and evangelicalism. But as he looks around this conference room, he realizes he is very out of place. And uh, who's there? Well, uh, I'll give you a a sense of of the roster. Uh, Richard Vigory, who is the conservative direct male mogul. Ed Dobson, who had been one of Jerry Falwell's uh, lieutenants at Moral Majority. Ralph Reed, the executive director of the Christian Coalition, which was Pat Robertson's uh, religious right group. Richard Land from the Southern Baptist Convention. Carl F.H. Henry, the founding editor of Christianity Today magazine. And most importantly, Paul Weirich. Okay, so if you're not familiar with some of those names, These were guys who were known to be part of, or at least supportive of, the political movement known as the religious right. In fact, that last name he mentioned, Paul Weirich, he's credited as the founding father of the religious right. In the meeting, it was actually about politics. And it turns out that this is a gathering to observe or to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Ronald Reagan's election to the presidency. Well, these are not my people, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, here I was in that group in this meeting. In fact, Dr. Bomber told me that to this day, he isn't exactly sure why he was invited to this meeting. He had not been involved with Reagan's presidential campaign or with the religious right, but the meeting ended up being a turning point for him in his life and his work. And that turning point happened when Paul Weirich got up to speak. But in the first session, Paul Weirich, again, the architect of the religious right, made this impassioned uh, speech. He said, let's remember that this movement, the religious right, did not get going in response to abortion, to oppose the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. Uh, Not at all, he said. Well, that caught Dr. Balmer's attention. And here's why. It was a widely known narrative that the religious right movement got its start from rallying against abortion. So this is an excerpt from Oxford Research Encyclopedia. Quote, in the popular imagination, no single legal ruling is more commonly associated with the development of the religious right than the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark 1973 ruling 
Roe v. Wade. But now, here was Paul Wyrick at this meeting in Washington, D.C., saying that wasn't even true. The session concluded, and uh, there was a break between that session and the next session, and I went to Wyrick. I said, I want to make sure I understood correctly. Abortion had nothing to do with the genesis of this movement. And again, he was emphatic about it. He says, absolutely not. So, if it wasn't abortion that initially rallied the religious right together, what was it? And Dr. Balmer decided he was going to find out. And so that meeting, that gathering in November of 1990 in Washington, D.C. is what kind of got me started on what turned out to be a decades-long quest trying to understand the true origins of the religious right. So I guess let's start here. Before we go any further, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page using the term the religious right. So, Garen, how would you define the religious right? The first thing that comes to mind is my own upbringing. My family was evangelical. We attended church every week. We watched Fox News whenever we were watching the television. We listened to Focus on the Family and Rush Limbaugh when we drove anywhere. We were Republicans and Christians, and the two kind of blurred together. I think the danger, at least for me, was that I didn't really know which of my views were coming from Christianity and which ones were coming from the conservative culture that I was a part of. Yeah, like the line between religion and politics, you know, it gets kind of blurry. But at its heart, like the religious right is a political movement with three goals to get conservative Protestants to participate in the political process, to bring them into the Republican Party, and to elect social conservatives in public office. So what do you think that looks like today? So there are individuals and there are groups within the religious right. And so on the individual side, you have white middle-class evangelicals who vote solely based on pro-life issues. And then you have spokespeople like Franklin Graham. And I think it's important that I speak out on some issues People will criticize me. That's okay. I don't care. Um, But I want people to think. And then on the organization side, you have things like Tony Perkins Family Research Council. Stand for faith. Stand for family. Stand for freedom. Stand with us at FRC. At its heart, the religious right is a political movement that seeks to enact their understanding of a biblically conservative worldview into policy. So it's a movement that uses politics to enact their notions of what a Christian social ethic should look like. Sadly, though, I think it's gone off the rails in recent years. But the definition of it is not necessarily the radical display we see today. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful thing to remember. And, you know, there are different names for it. Some call it the Christian right. Some people call it the new right. But for this episode, we're going to use what seems to be the most popular term, the religious right. And this group, this movement, it started to form around the 1970s. But here's the thing. This tension that Christians walk between politics and power and faith, that is not something new for us. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' ministry has been leading up to him coming into Jerusalem. And in chapter 21, he makes his triumphal entry. Yeah, this is the famous scene with him riding on a donkey and people laying down palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. Yeah, it's a big moment. But it's also a very politically charged scene because the popular thought was that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome. And now Jesus, he's in Jerusalem, the seat of power, and all eyes are on him to see, what is he going to do? And verse 15 says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And here's why. The chief priests at the time were part of a larger group known as the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were a religious political group. They were in power at the temple because they had bought their way there and they had made savvy arrangements with King Herod. So they were both religious and political figures. But when this long-awaited Messiah actually came and was standing right before them, they missed him because their political lens was dominant over their religious one. So they were indignant because Jesus was a threat to Rome and to their own political power. Exactly. So I've been really enjoying listening to the Bema Discipleship podcast recently. That's a great podcast. 
Yeah, and they like do this whole dive into the history of the Sadducees and the chief priests and truly like they were a group of corrupt power-hungry men. I mean, they were completely distorting God's vision for his people. The Bama podcast nicknames them the corrupt Jewish mafia. We'll link their episode in the resources so that you can go listen to it. But here's what I want you to know. Part of what I like about their podcast is that they dive into history for the purpose of self-examination. So it's not simply to say like, oh, look at these awful chief priests. They were so terrible. Let's all point our fingers at them. But they do to say, what can we learn from this? What can we learn about ourselves or about our place in history? Yeah, I love that. History doesn't stay neatly in the past, both because it says something about human nature and about then how we are. It's like a warning to us. But also we inherit the story itself. It sets the stage for and shapes our worldview as well as the world itself. And you can't know how that lens that you've inherited is distorted if you're unwilling to examine it. So as we dive into the history of the religious right, that's the posture that I want us all to take. Because we're going to have to uncover what may be shocking or what are terrible things. And the reason for looking at this story is not just to point our fingers with self-righteous arrogance, but to ask, what can we learn here? How can we do politics and religious faith better? How can we walk in the model and the lifestyle of Jesus? Love it. Let's dive in. Where do we start? Okay, well, typically in our episodes, we dive right into some sort of narrative, and we'll get to plenty of narrative stuff as we go along. But to start, we're actually going to take a moment to dive into some history, because we need to know the history of the relationship between evangelicals and politics in order to understand the backdrop. And I just want to make a note here, when we use the term evangelical, we understand that there are a couple of different ways that you can use that term. One of those, of course, is theologically, what is an evangelical? But the other way is to consider more so what is the social movement of evangelicals. And that is actually going to be more of the term that we're going to be using, mainly white, middle-class Christians who would refer to themselves as evangelicals. That is, those who take a literal interpretation of the Bible. Right. Evangelical is a broad term, so I think that's really helpful to make that distinction. Okay, so let's dive into some evangelical history. And to do that, we're actually going to go back 200 years to the early 1800s. In the early 1800s, evangelical Americans were actually pretty involved in politics and society. Again, here's Dr. Balmer. And so they were very active in a number of social reform movements, really, that uh, set the agenda for much of the, the nation in the 19th century. It was evangelicals who were often found at the helm of things like prison reform, public education, women's rights, and, of course, in the North, the anti-slavery movement. So in the 19th century, you have a really remarkable heritage of caring for those that Jesus called the least of these. And evangelicals were very much involved in that. In fact, they spearheaded many of those uh, initiatives. So that's interesting because it's not the posture we see many evangelicals take today. And this is partly due to a theological shift. Back then, there was a popular belief called post-millennialism. And not to get too technical, but it held that the second coming of Jesus was tied to reforming and making society righteous. So by doing all this social good, evangelicals believed that they were ushering in the new kingdom. But the culture doesn't end up cooperating very well. You know, so this is all happening in the early to mid-19th century. And then three big events really change the face of society. You have the Civil War, you have the Industrial Revolution, and you have this influx of non-Protestant immigrants. And evangelicals look at the emerging society around them and they wonder if their reform work has even accomplished anything. And so what happens in the late 19th century is that evangelicals began to look around and see, for example, the teeming squalid tenements on the lower east side of Manhattan. And they began to say, wait a minute, we thought we were constructing the precincts of Zion here. You look at the lower east side of Manhattan, it certainly doesn't look like a heavenly outpost. And so they begin kind of casting about for a different understanding of the Bible. And that new understanding took social reform out of the end times and out of Jesus' second coming. So that's what's known as premillennialism. 
Basically, Jesus isn't returning after we've reformed society, but rather is returning at any moment. So that means social reform is no longer important. If Jesus is coming back at any time, why bother about reforming society? Why bother about making this world a better place? There's no reason to do that. And so that shifts their emphasis rather dramatically from post-millennial optimism to premillennial pessimism, the notion that Jesus will return at any moment. Therefore, we are absolved from the task of social reform. And of course, like we still see remnants of this today. I mean, the debate between we need to simply preach the gospel and save souls versus we should be socially involved. But evangelicals didn't just step away from societal reform. They went even deeper than that. So that was the 19th century. Moving ahead to the early 20th century, you start to see modernism come into view. And of course, modernism brought all these new ideas into society that ignored or even rejected a religious foundation. Uh, so a good example of this would be the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. Garrett, I'm assuming that you know about the Scopes Trial? Yeah, that's the case about the teaching of evolution in public schools. Yeah, exactly. And even though the ruling ended up not in favor of evolution, evangelicals saw the broader culture as becoming more and more corrupt with non-biblical ideas. And their solution was to basically form their own holy society huddle. Evangelicals began to retreat from the larger society into what I call an evangelical subculture, which is this vast and interlocking network of congregations, denominations, Bible schools, Bible camps, publishing houses, missionary societies, Bible institutes, seminaries, and so forth. So that it was possible in the middle decades of the 20th century, and I can attest to this personally, <laughs> to grow up within this evangelical subculture, this interlocking network of institutions, and have very, very little commerce with anyone outside of that evangelical subculture. And of course, with this retreat came a vast retreat from politics. And it hardly needs to be said that during those years, evangelicals were not engaged politically, certainly not in any organized way. Now, many were not even registered to vote because, again, Jesus is coming at any moment. Let's not concern ourselves with the affairs of this world. Let's get our house in order. Let's try to convert or get as many as people possible saved and uh, get ready for Jesus to return. Okay, so quick recap. Early to mid-1800s, evangelicals are really involved in social action with the belief of post-millennialism. Late 1800s, society doesn't seem to be getting any better. Evangelicals take on the belief of pre-millennialism and step away from social action. Early to mid-1900s, modernism is seen as corrupting society even further and evangelicals retreat even further from society, forming their own schools, their own media, their own businesses, and essentially, evangelicals disengage from politics. And so, this is the context when in the 1960s, a guy named Paul Weyrich steps onto the scene. And remember, Paul was at that meeting in Washington, D.C. with Dr. Balmer, and he's essentially going to be the founder of the religious right. But right now, in the 60s, Paul has one goal in mind, to get evangelicals and biblical values back into the political arena. Yeah, and that's going to be a pretty tall order at this point. So to do it, he's going to have to find an issue that will rally enough folks out of their retreat posture. And what would that issue be? It wouldn't be abortion. Instead, it would be racism. So we walked through a brief history of evangelicals and their engagement with society, or sometimes lack of engagement. We are now in the 1960s, and evangelicals are largely disengaged politically. But one guy who wants to change that is Paul Weyrich. Paul Weyrich was a conservative political activist and strategist. And even from an early age, politics was his world. Paul actually passed away in 2008, but here's part of an interview that he did with C-SPAN back in 2005. 
I'll tell you a funny story. You know, when I was in the eighth grade, there was a, a, a kid that lived on a farm that uh, went to my grade school. And he invited me to spend the Memorial Day weekend uh, with his folks uh, on this farm. And uh, after I had been there, his mother called up my mother in a state of great agitation, saying that uh, I had violated uh, their household because I insisted on talking politics at the dinner table, and they never talked politics in their household. I didn't know uh, anything else. I mean, uh, my father used to say, in America they say that you shouldn't talk religion and politics, but one determines your temporal life and the other determines your eternal life. What else is there to talk about? And Paul's motivations for getting involved in politics in the 1960s, they're noble. He wrote that, quote, it is basic to my philosophy that God's truth ought to be manifest politically. And he saw that the way to do this was to get the country focused on moral and family values. So he starts looking for somebody in Washington, D.C., who will back up an evangelical issue and get evangelicals back into politics. And in 1962, the Supreme Court ruled prayer in school was unconstitutional. And Paul thought, surely this will be the issue. I remember calling the uh, Republican Party chairman, a fellow by the name of Claude Jasper in uh, Wisconsin. In 1962, when the ruling came down against prayer in the schools, and I said, you know, the party ought to come out really against that. And he said, oh, why would we want to mix up, you know, the party in, in that kind of an issue? And I said, well, because it's, the, it's wrong. And uh, we just argued back and forth and, uh, you know, he didn't end up doing a thing about it. No one would bite. Sure, there were evangelicals who were upset about the ruling, but not enough to make a political movement out of it. Paul tried again and again with different issues, each with no results. Here's how Dr. Balmer recounts his conversation with Paul at that 1990 Washington, D.C. gathering. He said, I've been trying since the Goldwater campaign back in 1964 to get these people, meaning evangelicals, interested in politics. He said, I tried everything. I tried the school prayer issue. I tried the pornography issue. I tried the women's rights issue. I tried abortion. Nothing got their attention. Now, remember, we're in the 1960s at this point, And what is going on in America in the 60s? Oh, yeah, this is peak civil rights era. And you've got Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. You've got sit-ins at lunch counters across segregated America where African-Americans would sit at whites-only lunch counters in protest. You've got Malcolm X and you've got the Civil Rights Act prohibiting employers from discriminating on the basis of race. Yeah, this is a really charged moment in our history. Yeah, but here's why this is important for this story. For a lot of evangelicals at the time, there's a big issue with education. We'll be right back. It's the Love That Neighborhood Podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Garen St. Clair. And today's episode is The True Origins of the Religious Right. So also around this time, you have Brown versus Board being enforced by the government. And of course, Brown states that it's illegal to practice segregation in public schools. So in the 60s is when we start to see these stories of these brave children like Ruby Bridges, who go in and walk through these picket lines to desegregate schools that were formerly segregated, all-white schools. And if you know your history, then you know this wasn't well-received at the time. Um, in fact, there were some school districts in which every single white student was withdrawn from the public schools within the space of a couple years. And so what happens after Brown is that you have many school districts, you have parents really resisting integration. So this is Olatunde Johnson. She's a professor of legislation at Columbia Law, and she also has a background in civil rights and has worked with both the Senate and the Supreme Court. And as courts seem to be getting more serious about it and as districts start to try to integrate, uh, you have white parents, white families um, leaving the public school systems. 
And, you know, it's like it's one type of reaction when controversial things are happening out in the culture or you see it on the news. But like it's a totally different reaction when those things are impacting our kids. You know, reactions get a lot stronger when parents become scared for their children. But of course, these families still have to send their kids to school somewhere. So what do they do? They just make their own schools. Many white families move their children into private schools. They engaged in what we call massive resistance. And they set up these private uh, academies that would come to be known as segregationist academies. And when Professor Johnson says massive, she's not kidding. Between 1950 and 1965, private school enrollment grew by 90% across the country and by nearly 130% in the South. So basically, white families found a loophole and said, if public schools have to be integrated, well, then we'll just go start our own schools. Exactly. And this is also where you see the explosion of growth of the suburbs, because another way for families to escape integrating schools was to move out to newer, wider parts of town. A lot of these segregationist academies wanted to have a kind of public imprimatur. And so that showed up from the start where some of them would take the identity of the public schools. Some of these segregationist academies had the same school colors as the prior public school. They had the same mascots. Um, they used the same symbols. And many of these private schools were under the banner of Christianity. In fact, nearly one-third of the schools that are now part of the Association of Christian Schools International were established around the same time as the Brown versus Board ruling. One particular private school that was started was Goldsboro Christian. So it's a school that's founded in 1963 in Goldsboro, North Carolina, which is in Wayne County, North Carolina. And the county's half black, but Goldsboro Christian doesn't allow black students to attend. And what they say is that God doesn't want the intermixing of the races. And so the idea of what's our religious identity, um, our right to free exercise, is pitted against this public value of allowing racial integration. And of course, like there's all kinds of issues there with like bad theology and bad interpretation of the scriptures. But like there are also legal issues, right? Yeah, totally. Things quickly turned political. And here's why. These segregation academies were receiving tax exemption, which not only meant they didn't pay tax, but their donors also got tax exemptions when they donated. Um, using a portion of a tax code that we all know. 501c3, uh, which allows nonprofits and religious institutions um, to not have to pay taxes. And of course, that doesn't sit well with the opponents of segregation. Tax exemption is supposed to be for charitable institutions, but you can't really call an institution charitable if the whole reason for their existence is to protect racial segregation. So a group of parents in Mississippi call foul on these private schools not paying taxes. That starts because Black parents in Mississippi challenged this policy of allowing these schools to receive tax-exempt status. And this challenge by these Black Mississippi parents makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. And they win. That resulted in the Treasury Department changing its mind. And in 1971, you get a revenue ruling from the IRS saying it violates 501c3 of the tax code and another provision to give tax exemptions to racially discriminatory private schools. And so the IRS comes to these private Christian schools saying, hey, if you don't allow these black students, we're going to revoke your tax-exempt status. You can't discriminate and also receive tax-free donations. That's illegal. And naturally, all of this sparked a huge uproar. So when the IRS issues its revenue ruling, eventually saying, we're not going to grant tax-exempt status to schools that discriminate on the basis of race, you have a set of organizations, you have religious groups, you have churches who say, you're violating my free exercise right because it is my religious belief that segregation is what God wanted. So two schools in particular that fought back were Goldsboro Christian and Bob Jones University. Uh, hang on, hold on. 
Bob Jones was founded way earlier than the 1960s. They were found in like the 1920s, you know, back when there was uproar over evolution in schools and all of that. They were part of that evangelical subculture that formed overseeing the ills of society. So like it was not a school that was founded in response to integration. Yes, that's right. Bob Jones was founded in 1927, years before the civil rights movement was at the forefront of society. But from the very beginning, they had racially discriminatory policies that didn't allow black students to enroll. Thus, they were still a private, tax-exempt institution that discriminated on the basis of race. And so both Bob Jones and Goldsboro Christian end up going to court, and they become part of a single case known as Bob Jones University versus the United States. I do think it's interesting that Bob Jones itself involves two cases. It involves Bob Jones, which is more easily styled as a case about free exercise, (laughs) and it involves Goldsboro Christian Schools, which was founded um, as part of this resistance to school integration. But here's what's also interesting, is that this debacle between the IRS and the private Christian schools creates this public fight throughout the 70s. And in the one corner of the ring, you have the IRS, and in the other corner, you have private Christian schools. And this showdown boils down to this basic question. Is the IRS allowed to force these institutions to follow the law even if it violates their religious beliefs? So it becomes a very, very prominent political issue. And so finally, in 1976, the IRS officially removes Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status. Okay, so... That kind of connects all the dots for me then. So from the point of view of this particular corner of the evangelical world, here's what just happened. The the government has intruded on their evangelical subculture. They've done it on the basis of race. And that's going to be the thing. Like, that's the thing that fires evangelicals up. So it wasn't abortion. It wasn't prayer in school. It was actually the enforcement of desegregation. And now that the evangelical political field is ripe for harvest, Paul Weyrich is going to make his move and he's going to solidify the religious right. And how's he going to do that? He's actually going to do it with upcoming presidential candidate Ronald Reagan. Okay, so let's do a quick recap of what's happened so far. So in the 1930s and 40s, evangelicals retreat from society and political engagement. 1950s, Brown versus Board and desegregation are mandated. 1960s, evangelicals form their own private segregated schools, and Paul Weyrich steps onto the political scene. 1970s, tax exemption for private schools becomes a political battleground. So how does all this lead to the religious right? Okay, so while the whole private school tax exemption fight was happening in the 70s, Paul Weyrich was not sitting around doing nothing. He was actually forming his own conservative think tank in Washington. And so for any of our listeners who aren't familiar, a think tank is an organization that does public policy research. So they're looking at problems and saying, here are some ideas or proposed solutions to those problems. And then they'll typically try to publish this research for the public and distribute it to political figures in hopes that the ideas will be heard. So they're not directly making policy, but they're lobbying and trying to influence it. Yes, exactly. So Paul's think tank was called the Heritage Foundation. Keep that in mind as we now move forward in time to the 1980 presidential race. The dedication, the humanity, and the good sense of President Jimmy Carter. The time is now for strong leadership. Reagan for president. Now from CBS News election headquarters in New York, is Walter Cronkite. Former governor of California has taken a strong lead tonight toward becoming... So in the 1980 election, you have current Democratic President Jimmy Carter face off against the Republican candidate Ronald Reagan. And previously, evangelicals had loved Carter. They voted for him because he was a Southern Baptist. He unashamedly talked about being a born-again believer. He taught Sunday school. He was their guy. But at the beginning of that election race, Paul Weyrich and the Heritage Foundation sent a policy research paper not to Carter, but to the Reagan campaign. This paper was titled Mandate for Leadership, Policy Management in a Conservative Administration. And it was 1,000 pages long. 
Okay, a thousand pages long. That's huge. Yeah, that's like the equivalent of like the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy and then some. So why did they send such a long document? What was in it? Okay, so this paper covered policy ideas. Ideas for things like tax breaks, how to run the cabinet, how to run independent government agencies. But the final section of the paper actually calls for the overturning of affirmative action. Affirmative action is government-mandated inclusion for minority groups. And so this has a clear connection back to the whole school desegregation issue. Exactly. Because if affirmative action could be overruled, well, then private Christian schools would be left alone by the IRS. So Paul's foundation sends this huge document to Reagan. And Reagan and his administration are like, this sounds good, because they know what's in it for them. All of these evangelical voters. Again, Here's Dr. Balmer. August 22nd, 1980. This is the event in Dallas, Texas, when Ronald Reagan addresses uh, anywhere from 10 to 20,000 evangelicals. Estimates of the crowd vary. This is the event where he goes out and he opens his remarks by saying, Now, I know this is a nonpartisan gathering, and so I know that you can't endorse me, but I only brought that up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing. So this speech is given at a national affairs briefing for evangelical leaders. Here's how the Washington Post described the event. Evangelist leaders joined forces with conservative politicians here last week in exhorting millions of non-voting Christians to crawl out from under those padded pews and take up political arms in the equivalent of a moral war to save America. Here's another part of Reagan's speech. When I hear the First Amendment used as a reason to keep traditional moral values away from policymaking, I'm shocked. The First Amendment was written not to protect the people and their laws from religious values, but to protect those values from government tyranny. brought down the House and arguably sealed the evangelical vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980. I read through Reagan's speech out at the uh, library, presidential library in Simi Valley, California. In that speech, he talks about his support for creationism. He bewails the Internal Revenue Service going after the tax exemption of evangelical schools. And he says nothing whatsoever about abortion. And this is a little strange, right? Because on the surface, Reagan was not the picture of morality and family values. He does not seem like the guy evangelical voters are going to support. Remember, Ronald Reagan was divorced and remarried. At that time, that was a huge issue for evangelicals, a huge barrier. But they simply looked the other way. Ronald Reagan had signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in the country when he was governor of California back in 1967. Nevertheless, the religious right overlooked that, and threw their support behind Ronald Reagan in 1980. And one of the big reasons that they threw their support behind him was that he promised to get the IRS dogs off the backs of private, segregated Christian schools. And that was something Jimmy Carter simply did not promise. In fact, many evangelicals saw the Carter administration as partially responsible for the IRS tax-exempt invasion. And essentially what we see is that this support of Reagan became the final link in the chain. It catapulted evangelicals to vote strictly within the Republican Party. It taught them to vote straight ticket along party lines. And it formed what we now know as the religious right. And I don't want folks to miss this. This means that the religious right formed on the basis of racism. Reagan had actually opposed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And as governor, he had called African leaders monkeys in a call with Richard Nixon. But evangelicals seemed happy to overlook this because he promised to fight for their segregated subculture. And I think it's important to know that the religious right included more than just Paul's think tank, the Heritage Foundation. You know, at the start, there was also the group Moral Majority with Jerry Falwell Sr. You also would have had James Dobson and Focus on the Family, radio personality Pat Robertson, Michael Ferris with his Homeschool Legal Defense Association. And many of these folks were already active prior to Reagan. 
But what the IRS tax exempt issue and the Reagan administration did was provide a platform for these groups and individuals to come together. It was the foundation on which all these already existing bricks could then build into. So then that begs the question, what about abortion? Because now that is the flagship issue for the religious right and for evangelical conservatives. Yeah, you know, we could spend like a whole other episode unpacking the history of the abortion issue. And Dr. Balmer actually goes into detail about that in his book, Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. But to quickly answer that question, here's what Dr. Balmer told me. Weirich recognized that organizing a grassroots political movement around the defense of racial segregation, essentially the defense of racism, was not going to be effective. And so they began looking for other issues. So they needed to find another issue to lead with, even if segregation was the energizing force. The other issue that did eventually resonate with evangelical voters was abortion, but not without some political legwork and some convincing. And shortly after the religious right took off, they did hang a lot on the issue of abortion. But that's not really where they got their start. In fact, Paul Weyrich has been quoted saying the following, let's remember that the religious right did not come together in response to the Roe v. Wade decision. What got us going was the attempt on the part of the IRS to rescind the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University. It shattered the Christian community's notion that Christians could isolate themselves inside their own institutions and teach what they pleased. The charter issue behind the movement's formation, which was racism. Uh, there's no pretty way to say this. Defense of racial segregation in evangelical schools. And so there's no point at which Paul Weyrich flat out comes out and says like, oh, I'm a racist, but instead builds this political movement around these things that are very opposed to integration. He himself described his own movement as a coalition of single interest groups organized around, among other things, anti-busing, tax resistance, and private school survival. And Garen, what impact do you think that all of these policies have had on African-Americans? You know, obviously there was all this pushback on integration. We have largely settled that issue. But like, what are the long-term effects of all of these policies? So, I mean, another one that we haven't really covered here, but I think the religious right is like pretty complicit in is mass incarceration. The way that racism through Reagan kind of evolved was the war on drugs. And so like at the start of the war on drugs, only 2% of white Americans considered drugs to be a major problem in America. And through the Republican pushing of the war on drugs and the marketing around it, that grew to like over 60% within a decade. And then through mass incarceration and through the war on drugs and criminalization of drugs, millions of black people have lost all the same rights. It's like basically you can legally discriminate against a criminal. And now it's almost like it obscures racism because it used to be you could discriminate against someone because he's black. But now that's not kosher anymore. So the racist language has changed to like, no, we're not opposed to black people. We're opposed to criminals. But then there's been this like marketing campaign and policy shift and uh, it's a lot more than I can get into here that basically Reagan and Nixon kind of led out in and Clinton also furthered that in the minds of white people largely just criminalized a huge swath of black people and given like a socially acceptable reason to take away their rights and dis discriminate against them. John Perkins talks a lot about what happens in impoverished communities when people of resources are present in the communities and then suddenly they vacate. Basically, they take their social networks with them, their education, they take their job opportunities, they take their family stability. There's so much that gets robbed out of communities when people suddenly up and leave. And with the creation of the suburbs, with white flight, with this... Uh, reluctance for Christians to be in the public schools, essentially what happens is you have Christians taking their toys and going home. It's like we have all these great resources, but we refuse to share them with other people. Mm -hmm. So the religious right started because of segregation, not because of abortion. That's almost unbelievable. But Ed Dobson backs it up. 
He was Jerry Falwell's assistant at the Moral Majority, and he said, quote, The religious right did not start because of concern about abortion. I sat in the non-smoke-filled back rooms with the Moral Majority, and I frankly do not remember abortion being mentioned as a reason why we should do something. So, what do we do with all of this? What's the point? First of all, let me say this. The point of this is not to be against conservative politics. I myself am conservative on a lot of issues. And I don't think that forming a religious left is going to get us any better results. Instead, I think that there are three things that we can consider as we look at the history of the religious right. And the first is, I think that we can acknowledge the impact that it has had on American society. I think the impact has been profound. I don't think there's any question about that. I think on the political level, uh, the national level, the religious right has, has reshaped the political landscape. I mean, think about this. Evangelical voters have gone from being on the fringes of political engagement to being a group that politicians and candidates take seriously and they want to appeal to. That is an amazing feat. And I think that we can recognize the work that folks like Paul Weyrich have put into making evangelical voters a very influential force in our politics. Second, I think that looking at history gives us context for where we are today. Yeah, I can speak to that some. We've seen this growing trend among the younger generation that they've been rejecting evangelicalism and religion altogether. The Public Religion Research Institute's religion census shows that those who identify as white evangelical went from 23% in 2006 to 14% in 2020. And the largest growing religious group continues to be the nuns, those who are religiously unaffiliated. Professor of Research Dave Campbell says, quote, Many Americans, especially young people, see religion as bound up with political conservatism and the Republican Party specifically. Since that's not their party or their politics, they don't want to identify as being religious. Yeah. In fact, Dr. Balmer, who himself grew up in the evangelical subculture and identifies with the movement, expressed his sadness at what it's become. This is a movement that that shaped me. It's part of my DNA. It's who I am. And to see it being so utterly perverted, and again, I'll use this word advisedly, prostituted for political ends, is, is deeply troubling to me. But I think the third thing to consider about this story is this. For those of us that are Christians, we have hope even in the midst of dark or corrupt things. It's easy to look at the state of evangelicalism or the state of conservative politics and be deeply discouraged. But the gospel, it doesn't leave us in despair. Earlier in the episode, we talked about the chief priests in the gospel of Matthew. And these priests were part of an elite power structure that they had gained through wealth and politics. And when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, they are indignant. I love how the Bema Discipleship podcast describes this. The Romans are on alert. He's been flipping over tables. He's doing the triumphal entry. But but let's be clear here. Jesus wasn't picking a fight with Rome. Jesus wasn't marching on Rome or leading a revolt with swords or clubs. Jesus wasn't fighting a worldly war over a worldly kingdom in a worldly way. In fact, it's when, uh, it's when Pilate asks Jesus if he's king that Jesus responds by saying, my kingdom is not of this world because if it were, my servants would fight. But they are not here to wage war on Rome as a political empire. They are here to wage war on empire itself. An empire is showing up in their own house, their own Jewish house, with their own leadership. Forget about Rome. Jesus marches on the temple to do some house cleaning of his own. I'm sure it's possible that Jesus had Rome's attention. But was Rome out to get Jesus? What kind of a threat is this peasant rabbi who's been running around telling people to forgive their enemies? But what Jesus is doing is he's really ticking off the religious, the corrupt religious authorities. And we know that these corrupt religious authorities will get so ticked off that they'll actually end up killing him. Matthew 26 tells us, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And that 
is exactly what they do. They have him crucified. And from the outside, it looks like Jesus' crucifixion is simply a political play by the chief priests in order to keep their positions in power. It's an ugly story of manipulation and politics. But we know now that Jesus' crucifixion wasn't just about corruption, but that it was the greatest hope for mankind. And Dr. Balmer tries to remember that hope moving forward. I decided a few years ago that despair is not an option. There are times when I'm tempted to kind of um, descend into (laughs) despair about this. But I don't think I have that option. I think we have to be hopeful. We have to work for a better world. In my case, I think I have to work for a better evangelicalism. And so I don't really have the option of, of despair. I don't think the followers of Jesus have the luxury of despair, frankly. The religious right has roots in racial injustice. And if we are unwilling to turn away from that history, to examine the ways it has distorted our lens around racial minorities, then we will continue to hurt and fail to speak up for, and even become complicit in the abuse of those whom Christ identifies with. Christians are called to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and for the rights of all who are destitute. We are called to a higher loyalty than to a political party, and we need to be ready to speak up for those who are hurting and who are hurt. That is what love does. That is what Jesus did and what he calls us to. Our loyalty is to a higher kingdom with a better king. We want Christians engaged in politics, but we have to do it with wisdom, and we have to do it not from a posture of self-defense, but we have to do it from a posture that trusts that God is at work in this world and that our role is to trust him and to follow him. So if you look around at politics or evangelicalism and you're in despair, all you see is a movement that has gone completely off the rails and doesn't look like Jesus anymore. Remember that it's not the first time that this has happened. And God is still at work. He brings light out of darkness. So keep following him. Because when the days are dark, he may be bringing something amazing just around the corner. Amazing.